Man, it is good to be here. Listen, I uh, I understand about people that have been sick with this disease. It um, I, I I don't know for sure. I guess because I had whooping cough about ten years ago. Um, man, this COVID knocked me for a loop, and I, I just I, I sat there as we sang this morning. Man, it's just good for my soul. Because honestly, the body aches and the cough and the breathing and the fever and the fatigue and everything else that went with it. You know what the hardest part of this was for me? It was the battle in my mind from isolation. And let me just let me just share a couple of things with you. Um, first of all, I'm past COVID, so at least for a while, I am invincible. Somebody asked me why I was wearing a mask this morning. I said, well, because it's the only way I can get my beard to curl. You know, it's, it's kind of my, it's kind of how that works. You wear it long enough and you get this little flip right here. Um, but but one of the things that I learned, and, and it was already a conviction, but it was just settled rock solid in my mind. And that is that... Um, the church needs to stay open. We, we need to be together as best we can. I, I've been watching the last three weeks on, on live stream, and, and I'm glad that that's available. I'm glad that we do that. We've spent the money to try and make that as technologically uh, smooth as possible, and, it, and it's a great thing. If you're, if you're right now watching us on live stream, I want you to know that, that we're praying for you, and, and we're rooting for you. But if, if you've been, if you've got a positive test or if you've been exposed or if you've got health issues that, that put you at risk, we want you to stay safe. We want you to, to join us online and we will stay connected with you as best we possibly can. But let me tell you, if, if you don't fall into one of those categories, you've got to get to church. I mean, we I talked to a pastor recently, and, and you know me, I'm calm, and I'm nice, and I never insult anybody. But he said literally the dumbest thing I've ever heard. He said, there's nothing that we do as a church that we can't do effectively online. And I said, then you're not doing church. I understand there's a pandemic. I understand this disease better now than I did a month ago. But I'm telling you that the, the, the church is the definition of an essential service. We, have, we clean this place in, with new ways that, that we had never even considered before. We have filtration systems in our, in our air conditioning and heating now. And, we, we've got all kinds of procedures that, that we take, take advantage of. I promise you, this building is cleaner than any grocery store in town. And if you can go to the grocery store, you can come to church. Good night. My garage is cleaner than Walmart. If you go to Walmart, please, your soul needs what happens in this place. And I appreciate the pastors that, that serve in this place. They have done a great job. We've had several of our pastors that, that have been out with COVID and, and other issues. And, and this team has just stepped in to cover and, and to make things work. Um, you, should be, you should be really proud of, of the leadership that God has allowed us to assemble in this place. They've done a great job. I mean... Obviously, Philip forgot the announcements today. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, you know, the thing about that is he was in staff meeting Tuesday and he volunteered to do the announcements. <laughs> so, you know, there's that. But, uh, but my pledge to you is <clears throat> that we are going to do our best to stay open. 
if that means we have to change some of the things that we do in order to staff sufficiently or whatever, um, I'm convinced that we need to stay open. And I think that, that, that God has really solidified that conviction in my heart and in my soul because I think that we are going to see some pressure in, in days ahead to not stay open. In fact, um, it's, in fact, it's fascinating to me that in conversations that I've had, it's been other pastors that have, that have been most adamant about closing the church. And I'm like, good Lord, guys. I mean, now's the time that the church has got to be the church. We've got to do what nobody else will do. That is, tell people the truth and serve the kingdom. If you recall in 2020, and nobody wants to recall 2020, we declared a year ago that 2020 would be for us the year of seeing eternity. Now, I know if you ask the average person to associate a word with 2020, it would be depression, isolation, despair, illness. I mean, there, there's a whole list of words that might be, that might be associated. But, but I want to I give you a different perspective of 2020 now that we can kind of wrap it up and, and look back on it. Because it was the year of seeing eternity, because we started the year intentionally working to discover where God's at work. I mean, we tried to open our eyes to see what is normally invisible. We wanted to have eyes of faith that could, that could see God at work. And the fact of the matter is, in 2020, we saw God at work here. I mean, we closed down for 11 weeks last spring. We had 11 weeks that, that we didn't meet. And yet, what I've discovered looking back on 2020 is that, uh, relatively speaking, uh, our attendance has been awesome. I mean, when you put on-campus attendance in conjunction with online viewing numbers, God has done something here. We're bigger than we've ever been before. When it comes to community, we... We've always had community as kind of a core value, but, but we've really discovered a kind of deep down commitment to each other. Our life groups are stronger and more active in each other's lives than they've ever been before. Our Sunday school departments are taking care of each other, are looking after each other, are staying connected to each other more than they've ever been before. 2020 was a year that forced us to rediscover that we are family and we can't get along without each other. Man, financially, let me tell you this. As we closed our books this year for last year, let me tell you this. Despite 11 weeks that we didn't meet in the spring, 2020 was for Evergreen the highest giving year in our 21-year history. Yeah, that is not natural. That's supernatural. We've seen God do extraordinary things. And while 2020 was a hard year, there were weddings that couldn't happen. There were funerals that couldn't happen. We couldn't do ministry in hospitals. I mean, so much of what was normal for us changed. Rather than just rolling up in the fetal position, we changed and we adapted and we saw God do things. So what about 2021? Well, honestly, I had my seven-day free trial and I haven't been impressed so far. But let me, tell you, let me introduce 2021 to you. 2021 is going to be for us what we are calling the year of preparation. Preparation for what? I don't know. Sermon series that I'm going to begin today is entitled Prepping for Life, Last Days, and Eternity. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on, now that we've seen God work, now that we've begun to, to learn how to walk with the invisible God, there are more of you that are, that are in the Word of God on a daily basis right now than ever before in the history of our church. There are more of you involved in life groups, 
or, or in discipleship, mentoring relationships than we've ever had before. God has prepared us for this year, the year of preparation. I don't know what's coming precisely, but I know that when a baseball player goes to spring training, he doesn't know what the season holds. He doesn't know what challenges he's going to face. He doesn't know what particular uh, struggles he's going to face. But he goes through the paces, and he trains, and he prepares, and he, and he hones his skills so that he's ready for whatever comes. That's what we're going to do. This is the year of just making sure that we are who we say we are because when the time comes, we're going to be ready to do what we're called to do. We're going to be in First Peter for the next several weeks, maybe months. And I think First Peter is, is a book incredibly relevant for the church in 2021. Of all the books in the New Testament, 1 Peter is a book written specifically to a church facing the hostility and the persecution of that first wave of Roman persecution in the first century. It is a book designed to tell believers not only how to face opposition, but how to live faithfully for Christ in the process. As we work through First Peter, I think, and I hope that you'll take the time to read the book more than once over, over the next several weeks, but as we work through the book of First Peter, you're going to find that it's the perfect place for us to kick off this year because it is a book that, that steals the resolve of believers, that, that strengthens the church to face whatever's going to come. It's incredibly relevant for us as we prepare for life, that is daily life in this world, as we prepare for last days. Now, I don't know when the last days are. I just know that uh, more than at any point in my life, it just feels like things are moving in a direction that the Bible uh, talks about. So we're going we're gonna to talk about those things in the course of this year because we're going to be prepared for what comes. Life, last days, and eternity. Open your Bibles to the book of First Peter. We're only going to do two verses this morning. I don't often preach that way, uh, just, just two verses. I'm, I'm usually more of a narrative preacher. But, but I've called this Evergreen's Basic Confession. Years ago, uh, way before most of you in this room, uh, Vince Lombardi was the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers. And the story is told that the Packers didn't particularly acquit themselves well in a game one Sunday. And, and so the first day of practice that following week as the team assembled around the coach and, 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 and he called them all there and there was a big semicircle of all the players. And, and Lombardi gave a speech to, the, to his team and he said, gentlemen, he said, we, we looked Sunday like we didn't have a clue what we were doing. So we're going to go back to the basics. He picked up a pigskin and he held it up and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to take the first two verses of 1 Peter. Because I think these verses are going to become crucial for us to hold on to and to go back to. Because in these first two verses, Peter is going to give us our identity in Christ. He's going to tell us who we are, and this is our basic confession. Before we get to anything of, of what we need to do, or how we need to act, or where we need to go, we need to know this, and we're going to claim this confession for the believers who are called evergreen. So open your Bibles to First Peter, and we're just going to read these first two verses. It's the greeting, or what we might call the address. Who's, it, who's this letter from? Who's it to? Normally, these are verses we would sort of blaze right past as, as just preliminary matters, but I think you're going to see how critical this is, not only through the whole book, but to where we are right now in 2021. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you. <clears throat> As a confession, I think this is going to set the tone for the, for the year for us. And it starts with a simple statement of, of address, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. From that, I want our first part of our confession to be that we understand who we are. We are useful servants of God. Now think about Peter, and we're going to talk about him just for a minute because he's the author of this little letter. But the fact is, Peter was a unique fellow. In fact, um, there weren't many like him. We know that Peter was a big man because in John 21, we're told that he hauls in a net filled with 153 fish while several others had, had had difficulty trying to get it into the boat. We know that Peter was a man of strengths and weaknesses. He was willing to act. He liked to strike while the iron is hot. He acted promptly even in moments of danger. He would make a decision and move forward with it quickly. When he was fishing uh, on the shores of Galilee and not able to catch anything, Jesus called out and told him to cast the net on the other side. Peter was a professional, accomplished fisherman, but he immediately obeys even when it didn't seem to make sense because he trusted Jesus. When he was called to follow Jesus, he immediately left his vocation and went after. There was no hand-wringing. There was no uh, decision-making. It was an instantaneous following of Jesus. When he was asked in Matthew 16 who Jesus is, he didn't offer any outside opinions. He stated his own personal recognition, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was a leader, a man others naturally followed, and yet Peter had weaknesses. He was often like a pendulum, and he would swing between alternate extremes. He could affirm before the arrest of Jesus that he would be with him all the way to death, only a few hours later to deny him three times in a courtyard. We, in, we know from Acts chapter 10 that Peter was one of the first ones to really understand that the gospel that God was sending through Jesus was available for the, for the Gentiles. Peter stepped out and, and, and visited the home of a Gentile because he took the gospel with him to deliver it. And yet in Galatians chapter 2, when the other Jews showed up, we find Peter backing away from the Gentiles, concerned for his reputation. Peter is a hero of mine because I identify with him in so many ways. A man passionate to follow Jesus, a man anxious to immediately be about the task, and yet caught sometimes worrying about what people think. Why did Jesus choose Peter? Why did God continue to call him? It says here, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means a sent one, a commissioned one. Why, with all of his supposed strengths balanced by his obvious weaknesses, did he become a, a, a leader in the church? Because God magnificently made use of him. In spite of not only his weaknesses, but in spite of his so-called strengths. After a great catch of fish... We find Peter on his knees before Jesus saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He knew he wasn't everything that he should have been. And he asked Jesus to leave, knowing that that's exactly the thing he didn't want to happen. In John chapter 6, when the crowds left after the sermon that we call the Bread of Life sermon, he was asked by Jesus if he would leave also. And Peter said, Where will I go? You have the answers of life. Even when he denied Christ, the Bible tells us he went out and wept bitterly. And then he was reinstated by the risen Lord because Jesus was not finished with Peter yet. Now listen, we're not all like Peter. The fact of the matter is, there's no other character in the Bible that was like Peter. Think about the other disciples. There was Matthew. Matthew was probably an accountant. He was a detailed, kind of quiet, reserved type of fellow. Thomas. Thomas was thoughtful and cautious. He didn't act before thinking. The others all had their own characteristics and personalities. 
we go back into the Old Testament, we can think about the prophets. The prophet Amos, he was a country preacher. He loved the open fields and the deep forests. But there was Isaiah. Isaiah was a court preacher. He was stately and poetic. And yet God had a place for each one of them. I think about some of the pastors that that I've been around in my lifetime. The, The pastor that I had as a boy, the one who baptized me, his name was Avery Willis Sr. He was a backwoods country preacher from the hills of Tennessee. What I remember as a boy is my parents always sat on the second row, and I always had to sit on the second row, and this preacher could spit past the second row. He was a, he was a walker. He was a shouter. He was a spitter. Uh, that's what I grew up with. Until my next church. My pastor was a man by the name of J.C. Bunn. J.C. Bunn was almost regal in his demeanor as he stood behind the pulpit and never moved, preaching from a manuscript. You'd see him turn the page in his notebook as he went through the the sermon. I remember watching W.A. Criswell preach when I was at First Baptist Dallas for several years. Even into his 80s, a man who was passionate and fiery, a Greek scholar, really unmatched by most pastors in the pulpit. I saw him at the age of 85, helped from his chair as two men escorted him to the pulpit and, and, and helped him get a hold of the pulpit. And at 85, I saw something I'd never seen before. I saw a frail, broken old man transformed. And for 45 minutes, he preached with energy and passion, full of the Holy Spirit, only to finish the sermon and have to be helped back to his seat. It's one of the most remarkable transformations I've ever seen of God coming on a man and just making him adequate for the moment. Avery Willis, J.C. Bunn, W.A. Criswell, very, very different preachers. But one message. You see, if we're to be useful servants of God, what we need to understand is God has a plan to make use of you. And and the, the enemy loves to whisper in your ear all the reasons why you're just not helpful. You're not productive. You just don't have what it takes. He loves to get you to compare to somebody else. Well, I can't teach like that person. Well, I can't do this or I can't do that. There's somebody that can do this better. I, I don't care. The church is not made up of experts. It's made up of useful servants who take their weaknesses and their so-called strengths and lay them on the altar and say, Lord, use me however you can use me. It's a part of our identity. And whatever we face in 2021, we have to have as our basic confession that we are here in all of our glory and all of our weakness for God to use us any way He sees fit. Every baseball team has a superstar. But every baseball team wins and loses with the other eight guys in the lineup. Even if you're the superstar, you only get to hit three or four times a game. It's a team sport. Christianity is a team sport. It's not driven by celebrity preachers. It's not driven by uh, exceptionally gifted or talented leaders. Christianity advances the kingdom of God on the backs of regular people who live their lives useful to Jesus Christ. It is who we are. It is who we need to be. We have to claim this part of our confession that we are useful servants of God. And we need to lean into that. You need to find a way to serve through your church. Maybe it's on campus. Maybe it's off campus. 
There's something that you need to do. Listen, attendance is not a spiritual gift. Find your place and be a useful servant. That's the first part. The second part is this. We are scattered witnesses of truth. Look what he says. He writes, To those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, he lists five regions, and we could talk about that, but it really doesn't matter. He's simply identifying the area that this letter is going to circulate. But the phrase I want you to catch is he calls them chosen believers who are living as exiles dispersed abroad. The word exile means a person who, a person who belongs to some other land and people who are temporarily residing with a people to whom they do not belong. In other words, they do have a citizenship, but it's not where they live. They are temporarily scattered to a place where they are aliens, foreigners, strangers, not natives, and they never expect to become natives. He's writing to a a collection of people who have no identifiable home on any earthly place. They are only attached and defined by their connection to the new order of the kingdom of God that is coming in. Let me give you an example. I've traveled a lot around the world, and and years ago, (coughs) on one of my trips to India, I flew to a particular state in, in India that required a, a state-level document, immigration document, not, not the a national level, and I didn't know about it. And I land at this airport, and I go through the immigration, and this guy, man, he chewed me out. And he told me that I didn't have the right document, and I had to go to this place within three days, and I had to pay this fee, and I had to get this paper. And, and I mean, he was letting me have it. And then he said something, and it, it made me kind of snicker, and he didn't appreciate that. But, um, but what he said was, if you don't get this document, we will deport you within 10 days. Dude, throw me in that briar patch. I didn't come here to live. I didn't come here to stay. I'm a visitor. I'm an alien. I'm a foreigner. I'm just here for a time. You want to send me home? I'm good with that. Because this is not my home. So for you to say, I'm going to deport you, that's no threat to me. Think about it this way. The church for 2,000 years, no one in the history of the church has ever wanted to be a martyr. But some of us have been called to martyrdom. And when martyrdom is the call that comes on a life and the world says, we're going to kill you. Dude, I'm just here temporarily anyway. You want to deport me? You want to send me home? Do your worst. I'm not wild about being martyred, but I tell you, I'd rather be martyred than stay here and deny my Lord. Because I'm a scattered witness of the truth. I don't live here. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm patriotic. I've been an American citizen my whole life. I love this country. But let me tell you something. In my sanctified imagination, I can imagine a time when this country asks something of me that I cannot in good conscience give. When when the flagpole that is planted in my soul flies a flag, the American flag is not at the top of that flagpole. Because I'm a citizen of a different kingdom. And I have a loyalty to another place. I am an exile. A stranger. A foreigner. And here's the thing. Peter starts with that element of our identity. He calls them out. He says, I'm writing to exiles who are dispersed abroad. People who don't live in a place that they can call home. 
He's not just saying I'm talking to people who've had to move from their home. He's saying if you're a believer, nothing here is your home. And the most dangerous mistake a Christian can make is to try and be a native here. It's to try and make this our home. It's to try and fit in. You are never going to fit in. You want to know why? Because the culture is dominated by an enemy. And that enemy hates us. So why are we kissing up to a culture that is never going to accept us and shouldn't because by definition, this is not our home. We are scattered witnesses of truth. The attitude of not fitting in is crucial to a successful Christian walk in this world. The desire to be a native here and fit in is the most dangerous mistake a Jesus follower can make. I'm writing to those who are chosen, living as exiles. But that's the third part of our identification, our confession. It is that we are chosen children of God. I want you to see this. In this translation, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, the word chosen shows up twice. Now, it only shows up once in in the Greek, but I think it's a fair translation here because because they're trying to emphasize this is where the the strength of of the emphasis of of this verse is that Peter's writing. This, This translation says, To those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Then it repeats the word again to emphasize it. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now I want to talk about that that word chosen because uh, he says we are, as a part of our identity, we are useful servants of God. We are scattered witnesses of truth, but we are also chosen children of God. When it says, when it says he says chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that word foreknowledge drives people crazy because it shows up in the New Testament in places and it seems to always kick off sort of a Calvinist-Arminian debate. If you don't know what that is, I'll tell you later. Um, and, and every time we run into that word foreknowledge, we get lost in somehow debating the timing of salvation and, and, and the decrees of God. There is a time and a place for that conversation, okay? I'm not discounting that. But that's not what Peter's emphasizing here. He's not trying to have a theological debate about the sequence or the chronology of salvation. What he's doing, notice how they translated it. I'm writing to chosen people who are living as exiles dispersed abroad. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. The word foreknowledge simply means an affection in advance. Think about it this way. If you have ever been a parent, there's a nine-month period when you have a baby, but you don't have a baby. I mean, you, you have a baby, but, but, but it's not, not out yet. I, there's no way to, I really shouldn't have started down this road. My point is, let me circle back around. My point is, you don't go to the hospital and get a baby and go, man, I'm ready to start loving this baby. When do you start, when do you fall in love with your baby? After it's grown and gone. That's when. Yeah, yeah. Typical empty nester response. You fall in love with your baby before he's born. That's what this word foreknowledge means. It means that God set his affection on you even before he adopted you into his family. Now, why is that important? As a part of our identity in difficult times, Peter is writing to people who are living as exiles dispersed abroad. 
if you've ever been around children that are orphaned, they're in the DHS system or, or, or whatever. A lot of our families are involved in foster care and, 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 and adoption issues. That's a big thing in our church. But one of the things that's common, relatively common among orphans, is this feeling that I don't belong anywhere. I'm not connected to anybody. I don't have anybody. I don't have an identity. When Paul, I mean, when Peter is writing to believers living as exiles, the temptation for an exile is to say, man, I I don't fit in here. I'm never going to fit in here. I don't, I don't have an identity. Peter goes, oh, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You do have an identity. You've been chosen. You see, Paul uses the image of adoption in Ephesians chapter 1 to describe salvation. And it's the idea that when, when God meets us, He's put His affection on us in advance. He's loved us before we even knew about Him. And when He presents Himself to us, when He draws us into Him, when He adopts us, we realize we're chosen. We're not accidentally Christians. We didn't stumble into church one day. We're chosen. God has an affection, and that affection has an effect. It played out. He came for us. He found us. And He made us His. Listen, I don't know what 2021 is going to bring, but I tell you this, whatever it brings, we have to hold on to our basic confession that says we were chosen by God for this moment. Man, it kills me when I hear, when I hear Christians moaning and groaning about the good old days. Man, I, 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 I was born in the wrong generation. No, you weren't. Man, I, I, I just wish it was like the old days. Listen, isn't it funny how when we, we're starting to wish the, for the old days and the old days are now 2019? I mean, it's like, man, I miss the old days. I get it. The world has changed. The new normal is different. This is not how we grew up. It's not, it's not what we were doing even 12 months ago. But let me tell you something. You were chosen. You were born at precisely the right moment in precisely the right generation so that in 2021 you would be precisely the age and situation in life where you are because it is now in this moment that the God who chose you by His foreknowledge, His advanced affection for you, this is exactly where He means for you to be in this moment in creation history. You are chosen not just to be in the kingdom, you are chosen to advance the kingdom in this moment. You are not here by accident. You're not left behind. Nobody forgot you. You have a role to play. 2,000 years of church history has taught us that every believer is sovereignly assigned a deployment at a time and space when they are a part of God's plan to advance the kingdom. This is our time and space. We will not back away from it. Because we are useful servants. We are scattered witnesses of truth in a generation that has abandoned the very idea of truth. And we can face whatever we have to face because we are chosen by the affection of God to be His children. But it's not just that. Look at the next part. We are one of the holy works of God. Peter says, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sanctifying work of the Spirit. It means the goal of your redemption is Christ's likeness and that will be accomplished because the responsibility and the work for our transformation is on God's shoulders. Now we're told to participate in our faith, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That means get on board. You didn't come to Christ. You didn't get baptized so that you could get a ticket to heaven stamped and slide it into your pocket 
and go sit on a bench at the bus station waiting for the bus to take you to eternity. I know Christians like that. They say, well, I prayed the prayer when I was eight years old, just waiting for my turn. Yeah, well, guess what? You weren't saved to sit around and wait to go to heaven. You were saved to become like Jesus Christ. How do you become like Jesus Christ? God's Spirit does a work of transformation in you. The theological term is sanctification. It means to make you holy. Is that happening in you? Absolutely. Some of you, some of you are involved in church in ways that just a few years ago you'd never been able to imagine. You went from casual attender to serious Jesus follower. Some of you are in the Word of God every single day for the first time in your life. Some of you are serving in places of ministry that you couldn't have imagined even just a short while ago. Some of you are in mentoring discipleship relationships where you are intentionally following the, the, the brother or the sister who's walking the, the walk of faith with you. Some of you are being discipled and you're living out your life together, shared within life groups. Some of you are in Sunday schools that, that, that you've developed relationships. You're not just here on Sunday mornings because it's the respectable thing to do. You're following Jesus. Well, how did that happen? Well, I turned over a leaf and just got serious. No, the Spirit got a hold of you. And God started the process of transformation that He intended for you from the moment He first presented Himself to you. He wants you to be like Jesus. Not sort of like Jesus, just like Jesus. And He's at work in you and through you and around you. It's the transforming power of of His Spirit that has taken up residence in you. When we face whatever we have to face, whether there's pressure to close the church, whether it's, whether it's restrictions on, on, on activities of faith, whatever happens to come, whether it's 2021 or, or maybe a little bit farther down the road, whatever comes, we've got to know who we are we are useful servants of the kingdom. We are scattered witnesses of truth. We are chosen children of God. Not one part of our life is accidental. And we are holy works. It's, it's, as, if, it's as if this verse describes like a sculptor who has an untouched block of marble. And as he makes the first blow with the hammer and the chisel, in his mind, he already sees the finished masterpiece. Listen, you and I, we're, we, we may not be at masterpiece level yet, but the Spirit is a sculptor who knows precisely every chip that has to go every section that has to be smoothed. And at the end of the day, he stands back and he says, looks like Jesus. It's who we are. It's our identity. We are holy works of God. But we're at least one more thing. We're obedient followers of Jesus. He says, you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. The sanctifying work of the Spirit produces obedience in the life of a believer. To be sprinkled with, with the blood of Jesus, it's an Old Testament imagery. The, the, at, the, at the tabernacle, they would take a, a hyssop branch, which was a, a kind of a tree branch that, that had multiple, I mean, it was, uh, it had multiple branches. 
and they would dip it in the blood and they would wave it over the crowd. And, and, and the blood that it had been dipped in would then be sprinkled. It would be splattered across the crowd standing there. And the imagery was blood was a cleansing agent that brought forgiveness. Now that, that seems weird for us. The whole idea of blood as a cleansing agent. I mean, man, I was always getting in trouble when I'd come home and there was blood on my clothes. And my mom was like, oh, thank you You know, we, we think blood is something to be cleaned up. But, 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 but we think about this image. If you were to put a tourniquet on your arm, I mean, cut off the blood flow. You put a tourniquet on your arm. And then you pick up a hammer. And you start to hammer with that arm. Here's what's going to happen. In just a few strikes, your arm is going to start to really hurt. And pretty soon, your fingers are not going to be able to grip the hammer. And pretty soon, you're not going to be able to even move your arm, much less hold the hammer. What happens? You release the tourniquet. And the blood flows into your, into your hand. What's going on in that process? Without the flow of blood, the muscle produces lactic acid and it begins to build up and it creates this pain until the muscle can no longer function. But you take the tourniquet off and the blood rushes in. You know what blood does? It purifies. It cleans out. It takes the toxins out of the blood flow and disposes of them in the right place. Use that image of blood when it comes to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Because what's happened is, when Jesus spilled His blood, when He shed His blood, when His blood spilled out on the cross, the image was, this was a perfect, untainted, unblemished sacrifice. And in the same way that the people had learned the lesson that the blood was symbolic of the cleansing that they would have, the blood of Jesus washes over us and the toxins of sin are taken away. Our broken nature is transformed. We become a new creation. Peter says it's part of our identity. We've been chosen by the affection of the Father. We're being sanctified, transformed by the presence of the Spirit so that, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, we can be obedient followers. Obedience is the practical end result of a relationship with Jesus. Think about that. He didn't save you to do what you want to do. He saved you to do what He has for you to do. As we face 2021, not knowing what's ahead, our basic confession is this. We are useful to the kingdom. And we're going to arrange our priorities so that we can be useful to the kingdom. We are witnesses of the truth in a generation that has abandoned the very idea of truth. We are not afraid of what we will face because we are chosen by the affection of God for this very moment. We are being transformed into Christ's likeness this very moment by the Spirit of God. We are forgiven and washed clean this very moment by the blood of Jesus. And we are called to be obedient and to advance the kingdom of God in our generation. Well, that's our identity. How are we, fa- how are we going to face the days ahead? Well, Peter gives us that as well. He finishes this way. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That word peace is the, is the Hebrew word shalom. It's the idea of uh, it's the idea of not only peace but wholeness and meaning in life. A sort of contentment that comes because you're you're in the center of what God has for you. 
The word grace is an explicitly Christian greeting that places believers under the blood of Jesus to receive like rain the undeserved grace of God to rain down on us. In other words, we know who we are, useful servants, witnesses of the truth, chosen children, holy works, obedient followers. That's our identity. We hold on to that. And we take that identity and we face every day in 2021 knowing that we have access to the peace of God in our hearts and the grace of God washing over us. The reason it's important that we grasp these two verses is because the enemy often defeats us by telling us lies about who we are. There is a story from the career of Roger Clemens, who was a Major League Baseball pitcher. He, um, he started his career in the American League, and American League pitchers don't have to bat. He pitched, he was, he was elected to the All-Star team one year, and the All-Star game used to alternate between National League and American League, and it was in a National League park, so Roger Clemens had to bat. First time in his career. He awkwardly stood at the plate with a, with a bat and, and, and stood there as a fastball, 98 miles an hour, came right down the middle of the plate. And he fell back. He'd never seen anything like it. And he walked up to the catcher and he said, is that what my fastball looks like? And the catcher goes, oh yeah. And Clemens said it changed his career. Because now, when he threw his fastball, he knew exactly how overwhelming it was. And he was never afraid to throw it again. Why do we need to know who we are? Why do we need to know we have access to grace and peace? Because once we know who we are, we will never be afraid to stand for Jesus again. Our basic confession for 2021. For believers who are called Evergreen, we are useful servants of the kingdom. We are scattered witnesses of truth. We are chosen by the affection of God for this very moment in time. We are holy works of God being transformed by His Spirit. And we are obedient followers of Jesus covered by His blood, equipped with peace and grace. 2021, do your worst because we know 